This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, people? Welcome back to Rebound and Safety. This week we're talking all about taking risk management practices and bringing them into safety. Can you remember that time I spoke about an article in RRSM and I said how this is essentially how you do mature risk risk management, sorry, and put it into safety? That's who we're talking to today. Let's jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplur. What's up, Beach? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tim we are trying to rebrand safety so if you're new here hit that subscribe button and the bell and the follow whatever the magical algorithm button is on whatever platform you are listening slash watching on my name is James McPherson, the MD and Lean Consultant at Risk Fluent, the company that brings you rebranding safety. So today we are talking to the gentleman that wrote the article that I reflected on or commented on uh, a few months back on rebranding safety. So it was a double RSM uh, article who today's guest writes for on the reg. And he was talking all about kind of like using PESTL and risk registers. And it was all like proper, mature risk management language. It was all, it was like the risk management world, but utilized for safety, which I loved. And I was like, hmm, this is juicy. So I spoke about it on the podcast and then I dropped him a message and on LinkedIn and said, do you want to come on the podcast, talk some more? Eventually, we got a call to have a conversation about it. And eventually, we got a call where we pressed record. So today's guest is the one and only writer, consultant, just safety extraordinaire, I suppose, Stephen Harris. So, Steve, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure, James. So, do you want to? I, I read your. Um, you've actually kind of been on the podcast twice. Once in spirit, and now in now in f- physical form, I suppose. In that, um, the reason I wanted to get you on today was because I read a uh, read an article in Double RSM magazine that that I thought was really interesting. Um, I kind of spoke about it on a podcast, and then dropped you a message at the same time saying, "Do you want to come on?" You were like, "Yeah, totally." Um, and that's kind of how we got in here. But before we get into that, do you just want to give us an introduction to yourself um, in case anyone doesn't know who you are yeah sure um thanks for that my name is steve harris um IRSM is uh, is a passion of mine it's a membership organization that i do an awful lot of voluntary work for um i do things like professional development webinars and produce content for their members magazine as well um, but IRSM is not the only membership organization out there. I think IOSH do some wonderful things, um, as do the Chartered Management Institute and a number of others. So I am the founder and managing director of our risk consultancy, and we do a couple of things. Uh, we're a training provider and, uh, yeah, just try and make our clients' lives a little bit easier by giving them options so that they can make their risk-based decisions on an informed basis. 
Awesome. Let me ask you a quick question then. Are you a safety professional or a risk management professional? Well, that's a great question. And I think I think to a degree they're one and the same. Um, so certainly an organization I advertise it as being a HSE professional, but when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of what I do, then it's risk management. Yeah, 100%. What, what's your, what is your background? Is it safety or is it traditional risk management? So, like, we, we, I agree with you. They're kind of very, very similar. But, but ultimately, yeah. the professions are classed as two different things. Is your background safety or is it risk? Well, my undergraduate degree was economics. And economics created a fantastic foundation for it because economics is about choice. So that's where my real interest in risk came in. Now, after university, I was in the security sector for about six years, which gave me a really good grounding in terms of risk. In that environment, it was all about uh, close protection and uh, doing various things for, for different clients. After that, I left and I went to the oil and gas industry. And the oil and gas industry was high hazard, high reliability, you know, low frequency events that were absolutely tragic and devastating is, is what I gravitated towards. And I started to take a real interest in major accident hazard and what led up to that. Everything from Bunsfield to Piper Alpha was, uh, was, was attractive to me. I know that sounds strange. It wasn't attractive to me. It was interesting to me, I think is a better way of putting it. Um, and I worked my way up the oil and gas industry. And then I've just left employment with a technical consultancy. And we had a look at nuclear, grids, all kinds of renewables. And I was uh, global HSC head of for them, which uh, gave me a brilliant grounding to not only bring my HSC skill set, but also to bring my risk management skill set on top of that and deliver for our clients, which was yeah, it was great fun. I'm really lucky. I, I I really love my job. Genuinely enjoy my discipline. It's my passion. I've actually just wrote my first book and uh, that's being published potentially in the next couple of months. And that's all about risk and how leadership is knitted and baked <clears throat> into the role of management within managing risk and even the role of market interface and branding when you're talking about organizational, operational, and financial risk. Mm. I look forward to the book. Um, that we'll have maybe have to get you back on and we can talk about the book. I'll have a read and then we can come on and talk about it. Um, I think one of the things that, that really kind of uh, attracted me to um, the article that you wrote, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more, was which I'm curious if this came from like your economics roots in the was you take a really kind of what some might call a systems thinking approach, like where are all these, these things connecting like external politics and economics and, and all of this stuff. And how is that in, in influencing the, the business and creating risk and opportunities are kind of well-known uh, phraseology yeah. and, and, and all of this stuff, which is why I kind of wanted to, because typically in safety, we don't really think that far out out field do you think did that come from your economics uh or economics um kind of degree is it yeah i think so. economics <laughs> i think so I, I i think it's part of being a 
a well-rounded professional in any discipline, you tend to find that the bottom of the triangle is quite broad. And then the person comes up to where they're actually specializing in at that moment. And I think it did come from, certainly stem from my background in economics, that if I am scanning the environment, then I need to find a process that I can follow to make sure that it's not just subjective opinion. So I tend to fall back on iterations of pestle analysis. So I'll look at political, economic, societal, technical, legal, environmental, and then quite often that will lead to other things as well. And there's some amazingly good and valid sources out there about risk information, which you can tie into your pestle analysis so that you can have a complete threat landscape for your organization, which you can then even knit in things like SWOT analysis in order to make sure that you have a true understanding of what the risk involves and what your forward plan, whether it's going to be effective or not. Mm. Never, you know, it's it's the old, old saying that, you know, it's like Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. But you Did have you- a plan, then you have a contingency plan, and then, yeah, you, you stack the cards in your favor. And I think that's what a great risk management professional does, is they can never predict the future. They can never give you a solid guarantee. But what they can do is they can understand the context of your organization and stack the cards in your favor so that sometimes those risks do turn into opportunities because mm-hmm. if you bounce back quicker than everyone else, there's an easy competitive advantage to grab. I, mean, I find it fascinating in that uh, if you would would never have this conversation in safety like when I joined safety. Like, like no. you do, do you, let's just take a knee boss as an example, but really any any kind of entry-level qualification into safety, they're not talking about PESTOL and SWAT and all of, they might touch on it to say, here's another example, but but typically we, we are quite insular and in that this is the way that safety does things and um, and, and so on. But in intro, I don't know if you, you've had a chance to go through it, but... Interestingly, ISO 45001 does seem to be starting to have a yeah. different, uh, it's getting a bit of an insight into their language and it's feeding into, I can't remember the number, but their other standard on risk management, and which is much more broader as an organization, uh, looking at organizational risk management, but they use phraseology like understanding the context of the uh, of the organization, which actually is yeah. a really big part of 45001, which is a really quite nice and refreshing um, kind of insight into into maybe potentially the future of safety. I mean, in your opinion, as someone who's quite good at this, are we are we getting better at this? I I think we are, yeah. And when I started um, in the offshore industry, which was um, seventeen years ago, you could substitute the phrase safety with the commercialization of failure. People would look at failure events and say, right, what do we believe happened in the causation path to that failure event? Can we stop that? Okay, and here's a completely reactive approach. And that's what a safety professional would be. They would be totally reactive and totally dictatorial as well. It was an autocratic trade. It wasn't an engagement trade. It wasn't a leading trade. It wasn't an influencing trade. It was a reactive clipboard trade. Now, we've come on so far from that to the balance scorecard that then is also overlaid with time-bound durations of when something happened, when something should happen, what are the recognition of the anomalies that could lead to whatever we're talking about. But 
also it's time to take that step further as well. It's time to not just look at our micro environment, but to look at the macro environment and the influence of that. Because looking at the micro environment is such a tiny aspect of what we do. It's like somebody, you know, going onto a football pitch and saying, well, the environment doesn't affect me. I just play my game. Well, no, you don't at all. You've got the crowd, you've got the stadium, you've got the pitch, you've got the players. You play a finite game against your opposition. And that's what that wider environmental scanning does. It gives us the complete picture, which I think is absolutely essential. I don't know if it's industry. So I've always specialized in high hazard, um, high reliability industries, but we are shockingly bad at sharing information. Mm. So I would, you know, I sit down in my membership bodies and I say, you know, what's your name, Tom? Where are you from? I'm from the aviation industry. And I'll say, oh, I'm, I'm nuclear. I'm oil and gas. And we'll look at each other and our, our eyes will be wide open and we'll sit there and just be brilliant. Right. Let's talk for hours and let's exchange loads of information. And that's great. But there's no actual big forums that you can do that at, that are actively doing that and doing it very well. And fundamentally, it's like Judith Hackett said back in the day, we don't invent new ways of hurting people. We're doing the same thing again and again. And it's the same thing in each industry as well. So I guess what I'm trying to do when I'm looking at the entire picture is with that context in mind, I'm trying to look at everything that could potentially encroach on my operation, raise the risk level, and action against it, but certainly consider it. Because at the end of the day, everything is always going to be a lark. Every single action and work has a risk involved. It's just about the prioritization of what is actually, you know, going to impact us, so to speak. Oh, there's loads you said that I want to touch on, so I'm just getting my <laughs> um, uh, No problem. You're ton of um, oh, so much I want to cut, want to touch on, but I'm just trying to prioritize here as to which way we go first, and and and. Uh, and then trying to how how we can work kind of flow them. What do they call it in uh, radio? Links, don't they? Um, I though interestingly, there was a, a real insight for me. I, I remember the line from Dame Judith Packer when she said, "You know, we don't invent, invent new ways of hurting people." And I, it's always kind of been in the back of my head. But um, Colin Nottage, who also runs a, another podcast, and we I talk to him a lot. Uh, we do loads together, and um, he's kind of a bit of a, become a bit of a geek in construction dust and he's quite passionate mm. about it does a lot of work in that in that space and really started to specialize in it and really interestingly um he said to me well to be honest james the the egyptians knew about the risk of silica and i was like you what and he was like there, there's evidence in like archaeology where where egyptians had acknowledged that the the people building the pyramids and cutting down the stone were, were were struggling to breathe were showing some symptoms of what we now will call kind of silicosis or whatever it's called and so they put mitigations in place in that you're only allowed to work a certain amount of time you were rotated off the job and stuff i was like wow that's that's amazing right um and I thought that was fascinating. And, and then that kind of gave me another insight into our profession um, where I was like, you know what, when we when we did all this big drive on construction dust, which started what maybe like five or six years ago, maybe not, maybe not that long ago, it felt like it was a new risk. 
It felt like it was yeah. a new hazard. The, the narrative around it was like, oh, my God, we didn't know about this. This has all come to light when actually the freaking Egyptians knew about it. <laughs> like, God's sake. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, which, which, which kind of brings me on to the, another point I wanted to kind of touch on is you mentioned kind of the evolution of like the safety professional when you yeah. kind of talking back on to when you first started in oil and gas um, and, and now, which I, I find is, is really interesting kind of on, cause we've done rebounding safety. We're kind of in a really unique position. And I think we could get to the kind of sit and watch our profession and kind of be a bit of an armchair critic in a way uh, where yeah. people like it or lump it, we're going to carry on. Um, but um, interesting. Have you watched the, um, the rig on Amazon prime? I have. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I much prefer consuming like sci-fi kind of fiction and all of this stuff. Yeah. So I like, I struggle to read an academic book or, a, or, a, you know, a real kind of, this is how to do things better book. I really struggle with it. It doesn't excite me, but I really enjoy watching game of Thrones, reading star Wars, watching star Wars, watching something like the rig. And, and what I do find is that they're just um, an exaggerated version of reality. So, so there's so much I think we can take on, you know, how to run a business. You can you can learn that from the Lannisters and the Starks in Game of Thrones. Seeing there's loads you can learn from leadership and things like that in those kind of families and those fictional based examples. And I'm going to come to my point uh, in a minute because on the rig there is a person on there. I won't spoil what happens to him, but he's the head of safety. He's referred to as the head of safety on the rig several times, and. I found it fascinating to watch this man who's the head of safety and his position um, and his kind of frustration of kind of being in a position of power. But it was kind of like he had very little influence, but he was in a position of power. And and it was that there's a scene where he finds out that there's something big on on the rig that he didn't know about, but the boss on the rig knew about. And he's really frustrated by it. And I'm watching this scene literally last night. And I'm like, I've been in that position where I'm just really pissed off that I didn't know about something. And I know so many other safety professionals that ring me up or message me on LinkedIn or WhatsApp me or whatever. And they're just bitching mind about why am I always the last to know? And that's an age old problem. So the, my question is, have we matured? Have, have we matured? Like, cause that's a problem I had 10 years ago when yeah. I got into safety. Well, the, the, the issue is that uh, there is no real benchmark within safety for to define competence. You know, you go to double uh, IRSM. I mentioned them earlier, and I, you know, you go through the different stages with them. And what you're doing is you're you're supplying evidence to a uh, fulfill a, a certain goal, and it's the same with IOSH as well. And I really admire what they've done with the blueprint. I really do. Um, I've I've been through it myself and I've read through it. I'm very interested in it. I think it might be a little bit high level for an awful lot of people in our profession. You know, not everyone speaks to the board every day and the way the blueprint kind of points towards, but it is it is definitely a step in the right direction. Definitely a step in the right direction. But when you're when you're asking, you know, have we evolved? There there really is no we because in a similar position to the chap on the oil rig, I perhaps know 
somewhere between 40 to 50 people that do his exact job. And they are in a range and a spectrum of competence like you just wouldn't believe. And each of them has comfort zones. Some of them might be uh, completion. Some of them might be drilling and work over. Some of them might be different things. But there is no kind of benchmark. So have we evolved? I don't think we actually know who we are before we can evolve. But the interesting thing, certainly with offshore life, is that the best of the best are seen as solutions providers. So I'm not by any means saying that I'm the best of the best, but I used to have people who used to come and search me out in the rig to involve me in operations and turn around and say, how can we do this better? How can we do it quicker? Is what they used to say, to which I'd always kind of roll my eyes and say, no, it's not about quickness, it's about efficiency. So there's something called technical limit. And technical limit is when you have everything just turning and burning absolutely perfectly, but you're also on the cusp of it going wrong. So it's how to keep it so that the risk is acceptable, that it's going right, but you've optimized every single part. And that's what operations people love. That's why they used to come to me. If I walked around the rig and said, tell you what, I had a behavioral-based observation card that told me that your cosh locker was left open for half an hour last Tuesday. Then immediately the shutters had come down. They'd look at me as if he's not on the team. He doesn't understand the wider context. And I think that's so important as well. And that is something that I do very well, is they signpost to the safety professional that part of your job is to understand the wider context so that you can weave safety into that as an enabler and not as a challenge, not as a roadblock. It's there so that the organization can progress because ultimately, without the organization, we don't have the luxury of safety, which is where the ALARP conversation comes in that balance of the hazard burden with costs and then trying to recognize where the diminishing returns comes in. And you and you're saying that the blueprint does that very well now. The the blueprint, yeah, there, there's I mean it was, it was a little while ago that read not that long ago, but uh I do remember it consistently saying that you have to understand the wider context of the organization so that you can then understand what your interested parties and stakeholders are looking to achieve. And once you have that understanding, then you can align the safety objectives with it. Now, when I say align the safety objectives with it, it's almost like safety is an afterthought. I'm not saying that, although in the real world, it quite often is. But it's better to have 50% of something than 100% of nothing. Mm. So if align your safety objectives with the organizational objective, and you're going to have at least 50, 60, 70, 80% of something, rather mm. than the shutters going down and people saying, is that safety guy coming again? Oof, wonder what he's going to say. Mm. Yeah, I, Blueprint does that well. It is interesting. We, we um, kind of been experiencing this um so like we represent as a kind of consultant we represent a lot of kind of small to medium-sized businesses that are typically subcontractors to your very big contractor companies that have huge safety teams and it's always the the safety advisor that kind of 
entry level, and, and I don't mean this negatively or to tire anyone with a brush, but typically the, the less mature ones of, of the profession, as, as we all are, when I enter into, into a profession or as an advisor, I am less mature than somebody who's done it 10, 20, 30 years, right? Um, so typically your smaller contractors are having to deal with those types of people. And and interestingly, one of our customers had had a situation where the safety advisor kind of just said, stop the stop the job you're not allowed on site um i'm just literally so my phone just went mad um and i'm like why why have we stopped the job oh because there's there's risk of of inhaling this biological hazard so i'm like right okay so it must be dusty as shit then um and i know there's no dust like right okay that's interesting. So, so what are you inhaling? What, what's, what's the risk? And it was, there was like guano, basically. It was like bird shit. Um, and I was like, you don't, you can't, can't die from a bad smell. Otherwise, we'd all be dead every time we fired, right? It's, it's got to be generating dust. So we had this kind of, kind of conversation. And I remember having a conversation with with one person and a customer who was quite frustrated that this advisor had kind of stopped it, and then it would kind of help and say, "Oh man, it was frustrating." But like, I remember me being in that position as a, an advisor and just kind of saying my job is to is to make sure nothing happens dangerous so kind of stopped and there, there is this fine line between like it very much again bringing back to how i think about things in in a film or even in a sport right if you I, you live in scotland you must be a rugby fan surely massively yeah. well, obviously so I, I don't know how much you know about english premiership but like think back to like danny cipriani right as a fly off do you know danny cipriani cipriani i do i do so you compare him to like owen farrell right owen farrell not a risky player he's very he's very good he's but he's he never really was classed as a quite uh he's not class i i wouldn't class him personally as a risky player right but i would class danny cipriani as a real risky player it's really exciting to kind of watch right danny cipriani takes these crazy risks and you're one try down with three minutes to go and you score and you win the game, he's a hero. If Danny does something crazy and doesn't, and the opposition score one more try and you lose the game, Danny's a villain. I find safety professional very much in that same position in that there is a lot on an advisor, an entry-level person to to decide whether a job is stoppable or not stoppable. And if they don't stop the job without considering, and there is a lot to consider, this is my point about the organizational content, there's so much to think about. This advisor had gone in and kind of stopped the job, and it did create so much frustration throughout the day. Um, but at the same time, they're under a shitload of pressure because if they've gone to site, there is a risk of you breathing in that, that biological hand, and they've walked away and done nothing. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's really, really bad. And um, it's just, it's, I find our profession is, is I'm very critical of, of our profession. I'm probably one of the most cynical people of our own profession, more than anyone, really. But I also acknowledge that we are in a phenomenally hard position sometimes. Oh, totally, totally. And I, I know exactly what you mean about Danny Cipriati. I mean, the, uh, the outcome of most of our rugby games is based on Finn Russell. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, who's exactly the same as Danny. Yeah. That, <laughs> so yeah. For example, actually. <laughs> so um, but you bring a really, really good point, and it, it goes back to some of the theory of uh you know bringing up from safety one and safety two and safety differently and all the rest of it, in that um what I struggle with now 
is people who are elevated into a position of power. And I'm going beyond the advisor conversation, but we'll come back to it. They're elevated to a position of power when they do not have the deep operational knowledge that is required in order yeah. to make a decision within that place. Yeah. You know, I mean, a, a, a brilliant manager or leader may be a very, very average engineer. And I'd never, ever take an engineer up to a position of management. What I would do is I'd take a potential manager to a position of management. Otherwise, we're just going to propagate the Peter principle. We're going to take him up to a place or her up to a place where they're miserable and they're bad at their job. And it requires an awful lot of time and effort for me to try and bring them back up. And then we risk losing them. And we risk them going home, being miserable and being miserable to their family, which, to be honest with you, I despise. And it makes it, it, it keeps me awake. Going back to the advisor example that you gave. You can't pet a great white shark and then turn around and say, oh, my goodness, it bit me. <laughs> Just what great white sharks do. And what we can't do is we can't ask an advisor to go into an operational or a business environment without arming them with a the correct level of competence in order to make the right call. Now, when the person that you're talking about stopped the job, I've got nothing but time for that. You know, well played. If As long as it was justified and you had a reason, well played. It turns out that, you know, it wasn't, but would I have made the same call given the information that you told me there? I'd like to think I would have had the courage to have done that. However, I'd be really interested to know who his line manager was or her line manager was. What was the competence profile of that advisor? And what instruction had they been given to contact a buddy or a mentor or a coach if they were coming up against a scenario that they weren't 100% sure of? And don't get me wrong, if they come up against a scenario and they believe there's an imminent risk to human life, you shut the job down. And if you get fired, who cares? Because as a profession, we are there to save lives. That's ultimately yeah. what we're here to do. But we've got to start arming these people with a correct level of competence so that they can make that call. You, you, and you can't get away from it that sometimes you have to do your time and swing the sledgehammer before you can get to a position where you can tell people how to swing a sledgehammer. Mm. And you can't be competent unless you're experienced and you can't be experienced without experience. Yeah. And in that environment as well, there should be an element of psychological safety, mm. but not to the degree that it starts to become a drain on the efficiency of the company. Mm. So it's a leadership issue. But to me, what you're describing there is a, is, is a management issue in terms of competence and a leadership issue in terms of Sending someone out the trenches when really they should be, they should be in there with their Kevlar on and asking their buddy, "You're running us dead, do you? Why do you do that?" But additionally, like just coming back to the, and it's the, another shitload of notes of stuff that you just mentioned in there that I want to. <laughs> So interestingly, the way that the, so this is a construction based customer. So the way that the construction industry is set up. That advisor is now not not assessing or stopping or talking to or engaging with mm. 
employees that they can also have lunch with. Like if we were to use the guy in the rig as an example, yes, he's the head of safety, but he's the head of safety of that rig that he also lives on and lives with the people and builds a relationship with these people. That doesn't exist the way that we've set up the construction industry in the UK, particularly. It's probably the same around the world, but in the UK, it's subby, 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 all the way down to the last subby. So everyone is a different business. And, and typically the person that you might be talking to might actually be the business owner that frankly is worried about a hell of a lot of other stuff. And now this safety yeah. bus turns up and they're having to talk to people and potentially stop the job um, of, 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 a, of another business. It's crazy. It is. It is. And it's interesting the way that, you know, when you're talking about uh, fractured kind of industry, I always have a look at the way the higher levels, so the way that um, potentially legislation can bring us together. And if even if we take a subsection of the two in 1974, actually look at section two, subsection two, and it talks about that you have to give suitable and sufficient information, instruction, supervision and training in order to bring that risk down to as low as relatively uh, practicable. And the, the wider concept as well, which does include contractors on there as well, in that, uh, in that duty holder's premises, then we either do it for legal, economic, or moral gain. That, that's our three parameters of any decision that should be taken. And mm. if the legal parameter is being ignored, which it sounds like, it could potentially be ignored in that multi-contractor environment where everything's very noisy, then I would start to question the role of the regulator and say, come in and give us a hand here. Your, your job is not necessarily punitive. You're in a goal-setting legislative regime. So help us out with the goals, point us in the right direction. You don't have to tell us how to do it because they never will because that would make them vicariously liable. But can you come in and remind us about the law, about where we're meant to be going? Yes, we can, because what I don't want to do is, I don't want to have to pick up a copy of SHP online and start reminding everyone about the prosecutions that have been done this month, because that is not the way to motivate a site. However, having a local regulator to come down for a visit, that, that can be very, very healthy. I mean, all of which all of those uh, those style of articles, and you mentioned SHP, and I'm just going to pick on them. There are many others, but I don't find any of them helpful. Like if I was a small business reading, oh, this recycling centre, and I'm only saying recycling because I've seen one today um, yeah. on on an article. Someone's been someone's been prosecuted for a fatality there. It's it's always going to be why were they prosecuted? Uh, not a suitable or sufficient risk assessment. Yeah. It's, that is always a response because that's always the problem. But ultimately, that doesn't help me as a as a business owner who who never who doesn't have a clue about safety, who can't who also can't afford a safety advisor or a consultant. They now go, well, I think my risk assessment is suitable and sufficient. Well, what do you mean suitable and sufficient? It's oh fucking hell. Now now we're down a, a rabbit hole, aren't we? Um, yeah. It is. It's fantastic. There is there's a hell of a lot of stuff I want to talk about, and and I'm gonna to have to I'll cross a couple of things out here and prioritise it now. Going, I really want to talk about that. But <laughs> um, Go for it. There's something you said there about in, industry talking to each other. You said it way, 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 way back, and um, 
I found this fascinating because when we think about what, why I was kind of attracted to, to talking to yourself was this kind of wider risk management resilience kind of approach to things. And uh, it's perfect lighting that is, mate. I can see you really nicely now. And, Thank you. And um, yeah, so so your your kind of stance on it is kind of very much aligned to kind of resilience engineering, wider risk management understandings, and and though what you kind of said about industries not talking to each other was a real insight for me when I was previously the head of safety for a trade association, and I think trade associations or industry bodies, industry professional organisations are like beautifully placed to be able to do to utilize this the, the, you know industries talking to each other big organizations talking and guiding small organizations and small organizations challenging but safely within the confines of the trade association the bigger organizations that might be setting rules that just don't work for these small businesses and, and, and vice versa um so if you go into the British standard for resilience engineering, it literally says, how are you talking to outside bodies? How are you talking to your competitors? How are you learning about risk and opportunities from outside the organization? So I kind of did some work where I was like, look, we are beautifully placed to really lead the way on showing how a trade association can really utilize better risk management, resilience engineering, whatever you want to call it, within an organization. Honestly, it was like, it was like fucking old school, like medieval Britain that just got a whisper of a potential invasion from something. It was like, get the freaking walls up, build some walls, shut the gate, get the arches up. It was like brick wall after brick wall. Oh, but what about this? We can't have this competition talking to this competition. Oh, yours. And I was like, look, I'm going to utilize the safety committee, which is kind of what it is historically, this legacy name. Let's just go with that. I'm going to utilize this as the way to try and try and do this. And most people in the committee were quite up for it. Like, you know, they were happy with this big name talking to that big name and, and this little name talking to that big name and so on. Um, the second it got up into like the board of the trade association or the boards of these big companies, they did not like it at all. They saw well, it immediately as a threat. Well, why, why on earth are we going to air our dirty washing in public? Oh, for the good of everyone else. Well, no, it doesn't work like that. They, they yeah. just don't want to do that. One of the things related to what you're talking about there that absolutely boggles my mind is considering the intelligent conversation we're having about the risk landscape, about risk appetite, about risk tolerance, about risk requirement, about building risk profiles. When I speak to a safety professional or even a senior leader about that, what they do is they have the conversation and then eventually the conversation circles round to these ridiculous ranges of retrospective indicators of how many first aid cases we've had, how many medical treatment cases we've had that have absolutely no operational context whatsoever, but are benchmarked in an industry that companies are then compared against, which is, it really does, it, it makes a mockery of any kind of quantitative analysis of your organization or how you're doing in the industry. Um, I can have two oil rigs or two power plants, one of which is shut down where the guys are sitting in the tea shack. And I can have the other one where they are turning and burning and doing some 
incredible things in one of the most hazardous environments known to man. And you look at the context behind the organization, I would much rather have the rig that was wide open, but had 10 first aid cases in the last year in a medical treatment case than the rig that was standing idle that had nothing whatsoever. Mm. But we hark back and anchor back to these legacy age-old measures, which I find incredibly annoying. I help I help organizations and tenders and uh, all kinds of things like that. And, and, and I, I find it so frustrating when I'm putting down a frequency rate because without context, it means nothing. Yeah, nothing. And, and I'm really not sure what else we can put out there to, to, to convince people that it's complete bullshit. Like, <laughs> I'm really not sure. Like, we literally had an oil rig blow up whilst it was getting an award for safety. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, okay. We don't quite believe that. We're still going to stick with these safety awards and the, the incident rates. Are, okay, right. Well, fuck me. I'm not sure what else we can do. I'm going to kill a few people and do the biggest oil spill in the in the freaking history of man. But, let, okay, let's try something else. Um, let's throw a bit of academia in there. Scientists, can you work out, give us some evidence that this doesn't work? Oh, yeah, of course you can. Here's one, here's one, here's one, here's one. Yeah, yeah. Still, still going to do it. Still going to do it. It's like, fuck me. Uh Cognitive dissonance uh, definition. Here yeah. we are. And I, I think it's really interesting as well. I did a, as you know, we're both advocates of LinkedIn, and it's I I think it's a fantastic platform. I really do. Oh, I'm and on I, the fence, uh, Steve. If I'm honest, I'm on the fence. <laughs> well, I think well, it's very, I think it's, very it's, quickly it's, becoming one of the most toxic platforms out there. If I'm honest, but yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say it's it's a great. Platform. As long as you control your connections and what you can see in your thread. So when it's a reliable network, it's great. Otherwise, it's just an extended Facebook. But managed in the right way, it's 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 pretty good. And I put a post out there about um zero harm and and the philosophy behind that. And oh honestly, I got <laughs> well, it's so many people see it. Yeah, coming coming back saying, oh well. You know, there's first of all, they, they anchored to the word zero and said, well, it's never going to be zero, is it? And I, well, no, it's not. And, and what's the definition of harm? And I was kind of sitting there reading these reactions thinking, you're kind of missing the messaging here. So I need you to think a little bit higher. So it's an aspiration for zero harm. It's, it's like saying to someone, be perfect. Well, no problem at all. I'll do my very best. But so what your so sorry, just I didn't see your post. So to get some context there, was your post in support or my uh, my post was my post was in support with a caveat. So okay. my post was in support of the aspiration of zero harm. And the post that I um the post that had inspired me to post was saying that zero harm was terrible because it is reporting and i agree completely however you don't eradicate the symptom you tackle the problem so zero harm is the symptom the problem is that you have an organization that doesn't support it so you look back within the culture of the organization and that's what you attack you don't 
rub out the symptoms until you can't see the illness anymore and say the illness isn't there. You attack the illness. So you create an organization where zero harm is supported. I have been in organizations where zero harm is supported. I've been in organizations where people turn around and say, you know what? Failure is a step on our road to getting better. Today, I had an incident. I've got no problem at all in reporting it. Let's examine it. Let's learn from it. And as long as you take that just approach, that HSG 48, where you talk about errors and you talk about violations, you break it down to rule-based and you break it down to knowledge-based so that you know that if you have someone who is purposely doing wrong, they're going to be dealt with in a, in, a, in a way. But if you have somebody who was doing their best and it didn't quite go right, then you have the opportunity to turn whatever culture that you have at that moment into a growth, high-performing learning organization. But it doesn't look good on the tenders. So it does, for another couple of reasons as well, influence poor reporting. You look like you're deep in thought there, Jane. I am, because of my relationship with Zero is... Uh... One of which I, I'm very rarely sit on the fence, but when it comes to zero, I I kind of I'm not on the fence, but I'm definitely from one side to the other so much I think I've got splinters in my ass. It, it, it's I struggle that, with it. I struggle with it. Yeah. And I I think I think what perhaps happens an awful lot of the time is people take it too literally. Like mm. I say, it is aspirational aim. What do we want to do here? We don't want to hurt anyone. All right, cool. But can we all gel behind that goal? We don't want to hurt anyone. Yes. Is the legislative framework in the UK made that way? No, it's not. It's made on, a, on an assumption that you can only ever drive risk as low as reasonably practicable. So there's always going to be risk. There's always going to be harm, unfortunately. I would hate there not to be. But again, it's that quantum of risk with a cost that, you know, sometimes we get our appetite and our tolerance wrong and, and people get hurt. But so that's the, oh, sorry, carry on, carry on. Can we aspire not to help hurt anyone? Of course, what a wonderful culture to be in. But what is harm? You know, what is harm? What's the negative part of employment? And, and are we ever going to hit zero? Of course not. Are we ever going to be perfect? Of course not. Can we aim for perfection? Yes, we certainly can. So there's a thing, there's a there's a few things that I I don't mind it as an aspiration. Would I ever tell a company to 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 go for it and and, and start using that as comms, like as as part of you know, like a principle in the organisation? Out of nowhere, no, I wouldn't push it. But if if it came up in conversation, we were discussing it, I would say, as as an aspiration, I don't mind it. Um, I think there are better ways for us to, to to have some impact. But if one of the main things I would say is if it's not in your kind of organization's values, so if you've got like kind of an organizational framework of values or purpose, principles, whatever you want to call them, right? If you've got this and it doesn't mention whatever that is, and then over here, the safety professional team, whatever you've got, then have their own zero harm, zero defects, zero whatever, zero, 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 and it's not joined with 
the organizations. Like, I just think it's complete bullshit. Like, I, I know. So if you, and again, I'm cautious of that because most values I see in companies are also bullshit. They're just words that we've Googled that sound fancy and we put them on a mug. But I just think you can't have it like, you can't have an organization set as value being like, we want to make a product that changed the world. And we want to be, you know, the biggest competitor in the market. And we want to be good on ESG and all of this. And that's it. And that's what leads to boardroom because typically boards are okay if you've got good set of values they're okay at using those to help define how they move forward and then the safety team who typically are rarely on the board then say we're aspiring to zero harm it's just not it's not connecting to whether the decisions are made it's that's one of my biggest problems with it the second problem i have with it is that I, I kind of argue myself out of this one in that sometimes I find aspirations a little bit exhausting. Like that's kind of like saying London Irish are going to win the premiership every year when they, they never do because they just get all their good players stolen off of them or, or whatever. It, it's kind of like, I feel like for the shop floor, it must feel well, I, I actually had um, working with a company that have these plastered everywhere. And we're doing this kind of big, there's a, there's a few consultants involved in the project and we're doing this big kind of project on culture and behavior and stuff like this. And, and we ended up having a conversation about it. We've had a conversation about zero several times, but with one guy who worked in quality where they also have zero defects. And that's, now you brought it up, like, what's your, your opinion on it? He said, oh, I think it's good as an aspiration. I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, so you think it's helpful? I do think it's helpful. And he, he kind of went down that route. And I was like, okay. But then he started talking about essentially how exhausting it is because he feels like his department, the quality department, were really trying to push this zero defect, defect where the company just wasn't really backing it, which comes back to your point. If the company's not backing it, it's just exhausting. But then to, to argue myself out of that, to use that London Irish example, where would London Irish be if they didn't just constantly keep battling to get back in the premiership? It, it, it is like without aspiration, we're nothing. It's kind of like the hope conversation, isn't it? And then, yeah. but then it, to constantly get battened down, I feel like it would be exhausting. So I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. And you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there is either. Depending, it's, it's again, it's operationally contextual, isn't it? But you know, if you ask any of the lower level teams, where do they want to be? I want to be in the Premiership. I want to be the best of the best. I want to be up there. Okay, great. And you know, they can metrics in order to measure their progress. What I would say with zero harm within the workplace is that it is in a in a real world, it is unachievable. So can we attach failure, success, criteria, or metrics to it? No, we can't. No, because we're always going to fail. But can we base that to influence our collective personalities and attitudes? Can we base it to influence our safety culture? So what's the way we do things around here? Will we aspire not to hurt anyone? Well, yes, that, that's where it belongs. But can it be woven into um, policy to come down to objectives to then come down to metrics? Well, well, no, because every single business and every single industry and every single sector is different. But like I say, if we if we have 
And it perhaps shouldn't be like this, but it is. The business on one side and then the culture on the other. As an influencer for culture, just try not to hurt anyone. We really, really don't. Just, just do your best not to hurt anyone. I think it's got value. Hmm. Then that brings me seriously. And oh, go on. And when we plaster posters all over the place, when we throw it in people's face, when we put it t-shirts and we put teddy bears on it that you take home to your family and you start using your workforce like children, then it's going to fall down. Mm. But if we have a conversation saying, I tell you what I'm going to do today, I'm going to take care of you, you take care of me. And I'm going to aspire to not hurting anyone. You do the same? Yeah, great, good. Just don't give me a freaking T-shirt with it printed on. <laughs> <laughs> I do, uh, I, know, so I was going to get on one route, and uh, how long are we on? Not long. Um, oh, there's two really good discussion points that's come out of it that way. You yeah. kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to pick one. Um I do find, uh, screw it, I'm going to go with both. Um, so I find it interesting looking at this from a lot. Now you're you're kind of in a consultancy, so you're working with businesses and, and typically starting to talk to the, the business owner, maybe a very typically a, a kind of more senior person within the organization, I, I would guess, right? Um, and, and you've always kind of had this mindset anyway. But very interestingly, and it's something you, you touched on quite a while ago, but there's a big difference with stuff we do in safety. And, and this kind of comes from the safety of work paper that David Proven did, but stuff we do it's in safety, that's not really for safety, but it's for demonstrating something to our stakeholder, external stakeholders, like our customer, for example. Right. So things that come to my mind would be SSIP. Now, I know the lady that, that kind of runs SSIP and she'd be quite upset to, to think that I think her scheme doesn't impact the shop floor. I think in spirit it does, but it, unfortunately it's not been rolled out in spirit. It's been rolled out by word, but that aside. Um, so I think that the, the heart is there, which is very similar to zero. The, the heart is there. I get what we're saying, but like when we, when it comes to application, it doesn't, it doesn't typically do that, which makes me, and this is why I kind of came to it. You were kind of saying, Joe, why is it, as you said, we'll just aspire to not hurt people. And I was like, you know, I really like that. I think that's a lot better than, than zero harm. I, I, I quite like just yeah. a change of wording. I like that. But then my, my brain went straight away to particularly one customer. The first thing I know that, that he would say to me is, hang on a minute. So I'm going to tell my contractor that's above me that giving me a contract for X thousands of pounds or whatever, that I might hurt someone. I'm like, oh, see, now this is really interesting how it can be interpreted outside. And, and then it come flags up as a risk, doesn't it? And oh, what we, are we, we saying that we're not very good at safety? I'm like, no, no, we're not saying that. What we're saying is, we're, we're, I hate when people say this, but we're a realist. Most people that say that yeah. are not realists, but that aside, like I'm a realist in that there is risk to life. I find that most companies might be uncomfortable saying that to their supply chain. Well, most companies, and and you know, it's the wonderful thing about working in the remit that we have. We are, you know, as much as I've talked about the weaving the business objectives into into our into our profession. Ultimately, we are the conscience of the organization as well. 
So I can quite happily sit here and state every single organization should have a risk register. And within that register, you can actually pragmatically see what the risks to your organization are. And what we do is we do our very best to, to prevent them, to mitigate them, to do everything like that. But if we didn't have a risk register, if we had no risk, we would have no business. So is the possibility of you hurting someone in your employment? Absolutely. Every single day. And that's why you need to be on your game every single day. And that's also why you need to have the aspiration. You know what? I'm going to try really hard not to hurt anyone today. That's the aspiration. Let's do that. That's why I've got this management system. That's why I pay for this great guy, James, to come along and give me advice. That's why, you know, I do all that stuff because simply by them employing you, is them stating, yeah, we've got risk here. Because it's, it's phenomenally hard to imagine running a business and being like, I'm going to, in, in an industry where people could get uh, harmed, like I'm a consultant. So typically, my if I had a team of employees, which I don't, but if I did, or one day I will, um, the work they're doing is probably not that that risky and, and other than being exposed to the site or whatever. But if I'm out on an oil rig, for example, I'm going to try really hard not to hurt someone today. I'm also going to try really hard to make money today so that I can keep everyone in the job, which is equally distressing to a human. Like yeah. that's a normally difficult position to be in, if you particularly if you're in a in a hazardous environment. Oh, totally. But remember as well that I mean the law to go back to law again, the law is basically on the on the on the workforce's side, as well it should be. Um, however, section seven of the 74 Act says that as an employee, you have to do what we're telling you to do as long as it's reasonable to do. Mm. So, you know, we, we plow these resources and we do the very best that we can into our management system and the mitigating risk and to do that. And as long as you can go to bed at night knowing that you have facilitated an environment for success and you've done everything that you needed to do and all you really need to do now is put your trust in the workforce to follow those guidelines but also to challenge them and give feedback. But remember, there's a management of change and a dispensation process to go through. You can't just wander off and do whatever you want. Then there's a moral imperative for them to do that and a legal imperative for them to do that. And ultimately an economic imperative for them to do that. That's how the organization exists. Mm. So yes, you know, you can go back to things like, uh, you know, vicarious liability, manslaughter, section 37, all the rest of it. But you do your best on one side and the law says that your employees and your workforce have to do the best on the other side. And then you meet happily in the middle, hopefully on the right side of the ALARP equation and close to that technical limit that I talked about before. And then continuously improve in a learning organization that really does its best not to hurt anyone. <laughs> and that's just a cultural thing. It's not a it's not a metric thing. And I imagine your podcast viewers, some of them will they'll jump on it. But let me just reiterate. There is no definition for harm. And zero is an aspiration. So please don't come at me hard saying, oh, that's terrible. That's awful. Ah. All I'm saying is that when your guys and girls are in the coffee shack, they're sitting with each other saying, today I'm going to try really hard not to hurt anyone. Mm. It's a cultural enabler. And and typically when I, I I find from our customer base, the, the customers that we have that work in 
high hazard environments well, we've got a couple of customers that work at some serious height um like rope rope style work and all of that and do you know what they they get that like if i said that to them like look you know you guys as a team are going to climb up this thing and um you're just going to try hard not to not to hurt each other i think that they would get that i think they would really get that and it would really chime with them and i find the work i do with them so much easier because they just get it they yeah, just well, these guys just know that if something goes wrong, they're, they're probably dead or or at least seriously seriously uh, hurt. The smaller kind of normal work environments where these higher risk events go are, are even further away on the likelihood kind of rating, so to speak, are much harder to deal with. Much harder. I think it's because you know they say about uh, when you're going off the war, are you going off? Why are you there? Are you there to fight the enemy? No, uh, never there to fight the enemy. I'm, I'm there for the man beside me and for what I left behind. That, that's why I'm there. And I think those yeah, for some oil, really, more than anything. Well, yeah, but yeah. I, I think yeah, <laughs> to secure the dollar. But um, yeah, I, I think the 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 high hazard industries get that. You know, they're there. They understand that safety is a team game. They understand that. You know the label and 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 exactly what you're doing just now rebranding safety which you're doing a great job when you say the word safety it's kind of like oh come on you know darwin's at play here i'm bright enough for this you know well safety is really only to predict mitigate or prevent the unplanned event that's it it's exactly the same as performance it's exactly the same as efficiency it's just to predict mitigate or prevent the unplanned event. And I think in high hazard industries, they get that. I, I think, and, and you know, when you go down and you're, you're, you're using your chemicals and things like that, sticking a high-vis vest on when you're around a forklift isn't such a big deal because you're spending all day thinking about the oil rig blowing up. So sticking a high-hazard vis on, a high-vis vest on, that's not a big deal. But if you're in a low-risk industry, and you go out to work with a forklift and somebody asks you to stick a high vis vest on, you're kind of like, what? Come on, I'm a grown-up, really? And it's just that contextual surrounding and understanding. And it's it's you know what, if I worked in a low-risk industry, I'd probably be I'd probably be the worst. If somebody said put a put a high vis vest on, I'd be like, explain it to me from start to finish. But like I say, if I'd been on an oil rig where I spent all day thinking it was going to blow up and then someone said, stick a high-vis vest on so the forklift driver can see you, it'd be like, pleasure. Well, and, and this comes back to something you said early, early, earlier on that we were talking about, the industries and uh, are talking to each other. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, coming back to our example of working with small businesses where the big, big business, business at the top of the chain has kind of had a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, issued a blanket rule that typically is PPE-focused that just doesn't work on the shop floor and is not reasonable or practicable. It doesn't really deal with the the hazard or the risk in any way, shape, or form. Um, And therefore, it's not being kind of conformed to or people are not compliant to it on the shop floor because they don't understand it. And, And sometimes, a lot of the time, you can't explain it because you're like, you know what? This is stupid. It is stupid. I'm sorry. Yeah. But 
that that contract is worth like four million pounds to this business and what they say goes and this is where i think trade associations and bodies like that can really start and, and even just double rsm just to use them as example like I know the heads of safety through LinkedIn and through the podcast of some of these big companies. Like if I think it's really stupid, I'll hit them up on LinkedIn. I'll be like, look, this is the real world on the shop floor. This is what my companies, my customers, employees are doing. That rule that you just rolled out, it ain't working, mate. Can we have a conversation? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go off on a, on a bit of a tangent here. So bring me back on if you need me to. But it is tragic so within the uk as you know last year's figures said that there was about 1.8 million um days lost and, and about 980 sorry workers um affected but there's about 918,000 that was directly linked to anxiety depression and stress and yes the collection of those figures is a point of debate however when you look at industry and the way the industry is set up the larger companies are able to bring in these incredibly great uh, mental health awareness programs and, and they don't do initiatives. They actually are able to change the management structure, going back to the HSE six pillars of a, a management system and the, the, the Farmerson's Stevenson report where all originated from. But it's the small to medium sized enterprises where the vast majority of our workforce is that can't afford to bring in these mental health programs where there's an awful lot of suffering. And I think it's much the same in traditional safety, that the bigger organizations are able to sit there and put a competency program in with technical skills and with non-technical skills. And they're able to knit into their day the education of why it's necessary and all the rest. And then it trickles down to the small to medium enterprises as, no, you need to do this. Well, why? Well, it's explained in the bigger organizations, but in this organization, we don't really understand it. And it's like you say, just do it. And if we don't know how well that gets buy-in when we tell somebody to do something, it's never going to land. But yeah, it's 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 my little little tangent there that you know we we benchmark and we expect the SMEs to work to the same standards as the the big huge corporations that can afford massive budgets whereas you know tom who just he's a really hard worker so he's gone into business with julian they've got this incredible organization that's got maybe 10 people on the shop floor and they're doing really well but they don't have that budget and they don't have the competence they don't have the time they don't have the resources so again they come to someone like yourself james and and it would be a very tough conversation for you to have to them saying look i need this much budget in order to make you relevant and control your risks. Well, geez, we didn't put that in a financial forecast, so it's not there. So the trade association, circling around, it's the trade associations that should be there to give away that advice and give away that support for free as much as possible. I mean, what else? What on earth else do you pay your membership fees for if it's not for that? And, and typically, the, what you see from trade associations, in my opinion, is, is nowhere near the mark. Um, it's, it's nowhere near that level of that level of detail, maturity. <sighs> the list could go on. The, the business, the businesses need. Um, I think a lot of them are scared of that vicarious liability you've mentioned a few times. A lot of them are scared of of um, or oh, if we tell them to do this and do that, like what does that mean? You've also got like 
I was at a trade association mid-COVID and the political influences and oh. kind of socio-political influences in the trade association are phenomenally powerful. And you're just like, oh, hang on a minute. Like, I, I wouldn't say unethical would be too far, but like, like this is a hard call to make. Like, the, 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 the law's not helping me with this. The government's not helping me with this. The, the companies and the members are losing loads of money um, and I'm literally having to make it up as I go along. But that was kind of the nature of COVID anyway. But it, it is just phenomenally hard. And I've also got to kind of circumnavigate this wording of how we write this comms that's about to go out to thousands of companies that yeah. doesn't make us as a body vicariously liable is a freaking nightmare, but also that doesn't spark a six million email inbox being like, "What does this mean? How do you do this?" Yeah, yeah. And it's a nightmare. So I'm, I'm, I'm standing here critical of all of these professional bodies, but I'm also empathetic of their position as well. I'm a. We're quite lucky in the energy industry. We've got. Um, I know you and I discussed it before. Offshore Energies UK, and they do a great job in that they put the right people around the table from industry. So the industry comes up with their own solutions, but they have strong enough leaders at the top to be able to say to an industry leader, you've said your piece now, be quiet and stop dominating this conversation. We need this person to speak. Because especially in the likes of the oil and gas industry, not so much in wind, not so much in electricity, not so much in nuclear, quite often, confidence is confused with competence and you'll tend to find that one person absolutely dominates a work group and ultimately writes the paper and the guidance that comes out from it. Offshore Energies UK are very good at filtering that. However, like yourself, I've been involved with other trade associations and say it outright, the nepotism and the, the internal politics and Whoever's got the biggest voice has the most amount of power, which they only have the power that the people give them. Um, I, I think I've been quite lucky to have that exposure because I think it's quite yeah. rare to get an insight into, into a, a trade association or a professional body from an employee point of view. And, and it actually kind of flags helps me i think with our customers who inherently are all curious about whether they should join a, a trade association whether it will help them and so on and we actually was in a meeting with with a big professional body with our customer who our customer was curious as to whether they wanted to join this professional body and they were kind of explaining how the tiered system works and they were like so the board is made up of tier one members and all the tier one members are your your big organization so your household names right and then the tier two membership which is where you guys will sit that they kind of do the working groups and i'm listening to this this lady kind of describe it and i'm like hang on a minute the small people the small businesses medium-sized businesses are essentially doing all of the work here yeah. and on the board they no there's no connection for them into the board as to where the decisions are made in this in this body, which is trying to lead the industry. So I kind of said, I'm I'm I might have missed something. And correct me if I'm wrong. How how does my customer get connection with where the decisions are made in the boardroom? And she was like, oh, so each working group has has somebody from that 
kind of level in in it as like the team leader of that working group. I'm not so much like Jesus Christ. Okay, so basically we've got the board of all these big companies that control the supply chain anyway. They now control the working groups. I'm just like <laughs> literally yeah. just destroying anything. Not really. Like, yeah, like there's no control. I said so. What, so why haven't you got like an SME seat, at least one seat on the board uh, or tier two seat or whatever it is on the board? And she was like, hmm, yeah, that is a good point, actually. And I said, look, I only know because we had the same conversation when I was in a trade association. And just towards my end of the time, we we were doing that. We created an SME seat because it had been raised by us and the members that hang on a minute, these smaller companies have got no representat- representation where the big decisions are being made. I think I, I, you hit the nail on the head, and I think it's really interesting. So if you look at um, leadership training, for example, and it's it always fascinates me when I speak to senior leaders and say, what kind of leadership training have you got? And they list off management training. So very actually have leadership training. Leadership is a completely different discipline to management. But when you when you are going through leadership training, you you have that um, that spectrum going from transformational to transactional. And the transactional stuff, which is, very, very important when you're talking about things like emergency response, when you you give an order and you just need it done. Mm. But you then come over to the other side of the spectrum, which is transformational, and you start talking about that collaborative approach, that share of ideas, where you really need that neurodiversity within your team so that you you ask five people a question and they don't essentially give you all the same answer. And that kind of leadership is so essential within what we're talking about, the trade body world. And then you take it back to you and I as context for this, when we're in the likes of a HAZOP or HAZID or a risk assessment, and I know that I do, and I know you will as well, that the quiet person in the room will always be brought forward. And they will, not in an uncomfortable way, but quite often that person sitting back is not sitting back because they're scared to talk, is sitting back because they're cognitively processing things on a different level, and we need to tap into that. And I think these trade bodies that we're talking about just now, and other public bodies as well, need to understand the fact that some of the most talented people we have in the industry are the SMEs. In the same way as the organizations that I work for, some of the most talented people in those organizations are swinging sledgehammers on drill floors. And they have to access that and they have to bring it forward. And it's a failure in their leadership not to. And, and, I, and I feel we're, we're using trade bodies as an example because both of us have connections or previous connections from, in my case, with, with trade bodies. But you look at IOS, you look at RRSM, you look at yeah. most people that are leading the conversation of their, they all work for big brand companies. Big oh, yeah. Companies. So we we are very much the same uh, of this. Now there'll be somebody listening to this who's like, oh no, I'm a volunteer at IOSH and I work for a small business. So okay, yeah, there are obviously people in there. I don't take my word for as verbatim, but ultimately the big names of people that we see from big organized from uh, IOSH, sorry, or WRSM that are kind of leading the way, they're from big named organizations, whether they're big consultancies, big oil and gas, big brands like, I don't know, like friggin' Tesco or something, whatever. They're all from big brands because ultimately, not just the economy, but also UK, 
but really safety as well. We are addicted to a big name like, oh, Vodafone. Oh, yeah. Ooh, Vodafone. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Oh, BP. Wow, that's cool. Like Bob's, I don't know, Bob's Renewables. You know, we don't give a shit about Bob's Renewables. Who are you? Um, and and it's to your point, they're they're the real work in the industry. So if you're the head of safety for Bob's Renewables, that's who I want to talk to because Bob's Renewables are the ones that are actually climbing up these wind farms or putting the solar panels on the roof or whatever it is. And I I, I think again, I mean that I could literally talk to you all day, James. But I I think again, you've, you've, <laughs> I was just thinking the same. I was looking at the clock. Yeah, yeah. You, okay, we you, got you've, we got <laughs> You've hit a really interesting point there in that um, it's the engagement in the in the membership bodies as well that, that who do we need? So a CEO, a board member, a, an HSE director, risk director, whatever you want to call them, they're not gatekeepers. They're they're not actual influencers. I want to speak to the operations managers. I want to speak to um, the safety advisors that are actually out on the pitch. I don't want to speak to the uh, and I can say this because I am now one. I don't want to speak to the office jockeys that are back in the office. Mm. Um, I speak to the people that are out there. But when I go to the membership bodies, um, quite often I'll, I'll speak to, uh, you know, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a really nice person and I'm the director of this and that. Okay, great. So what, what actual influence do you have in managing down? Because I know as a director, you'll manage up. That would be great. But you'll probably only have a sphere of influence onto three people, to five people maybe. You'll then manage down to another three to five. You'll then manage down to another three to five. So where is the actual layer that manages down to the really influential three to five that I need to hit with this message? Mm. And I think that in our profession is, is, an, is an absolute skill. They say that in order to, to close a deal with an organization, there are usually seven gatekeepers that you need to hit from getting on an approved vendors list to getting the PO cut to all the rest of it. So who are the actual stakeholders within organizations and how do we map them to make that influence? You know, directors turning up at membership bodies and listening to my webinar. It's wonderful. It makes me feel great. Look at you with your job title and your post nominals. Wow. Don't I feel special? Are you actually going to make any difference? No. Are you going to put this down in your CPD profile so you can turn around to your line manager and say, look what I've done? Probably. Are you going to remember anything I say? I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, clearly, we work with different types of businesses because if there were seven people I had to influence to get a contract, I wouldn't even be bothered. I'd be like, see you later. <laughs> I'm off. I'm off. I'm, I'm, two is the maximum I'll talk to. And if, yeah, it's... Uh, it's um that's not doable for me, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, right, mate. Why well, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said I could talk to you all day. I was just thinking the same. Like, if we had a couple of beers, I think this would be an all-nighter. Um, but it is half five. Um, so uh, I'm keen to let you go. You mentioned earlier about all of this stuff that you do, and we've been pretty much just talking about your maturity and risk management and safety. So if anybody wanted to find out some more about you, talk to you some more about this, what's the best way that they can do that? I think the best way for them to get in touch, James, would be through LinkedIn. So track me down on LinkedIn. And uh, if you find a Steve Harris that's a mutual connection with James McPherson, then you've got the right guy.
Cool. And we'll we'll get your LinkedIn and we'll put it in the description as well for, for everyone to uh to just go and click on that as well. But Steve, thank you very much for your time. Uh like you said, and I've said I could talk to you for hours and end. Um, but that's probably not good for either of us. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day we'll we'll uh we'll share some rugby stories as well. So safety in rugby is gonna be our topic. For sure. And um unless you're playing England, which you are very soon. Best of luck in the Six Nations. Excellent. Well, I'm the only Scotsman in my family, so to be honest with you, I've got split loyalties. I I I like English rugby, but I'd never I, um, that in the public scene. So a friend of mine, a friend of mine is kind of proper Scottish, and he's like, "How how can with a name like McPherson, how can you support England?" I'm like, "Look, I support Scotland as long as they're not playing England." I was yeah. born I was born in England, uh, but I am very much British, the same as you said earlier. That's that's pretty much the way I see it as well. I support England against all teams except for Scotland. Yeah. So, nice one. Good, good way to be. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, James. Okay, peeps. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget, if you need any help or support with this stuff, check out riskfluentltd.com. That's riskfluentltd.com. Or you can email me, james at riskfluentltd.com. Because um, we do all of this shit. We help small, medium-sized businesses that don't have a safety team. We also work with a number of customers that are safety teams. Um, we help them kind of prioritize. We help them grow. We could do coaching. We do some project work for companies. So we literally work with mammoth, unbelievably big and complex organizations all the way down to really, really small, simple operations. And it's all about kind of bringing this risk management ideology, this human, human-centered approach into safety. So if you need some help with that stuff, check out RiskFluent ltd.com at the moment we are mad busy with fire um it's gone mad the fire world has which is good it needed a bit of a kick up the ass so everyone seems to be finally getting fire assessments for their properties so that's good so if you need some help fire stuff as well come and check us out um it'll either be me or one of our other amazing fire risk assessors that we have in the team risk fluent ltd.com if you enjoyed this episode think of one person you can share it with or at least just hit subscribe otherwise i'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilized in real life as the only solution available Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.